Birds, they can be found everywhere, across all landscapes, habitats, and of course our own backyards. That's what makes birds great indicators for the health of our environment. If they're happy, it's a good sign that Mother Nature is too. But birds are also excellent adapters. So with the increased threat of sea level rise, just like people who live near the water, shorebirds are doing their best to make it work. These beaches and these dunes are really important for mitigating a lot of environmental change. So like sea level rise, increased storms, intensity of storms. These kind of beaches are kind of like our first line of defense against protecting our own cities and and homes from environmental damage. Samantha Dietz is escorting us on a bird walk today. That investment in the health of our shores she's talking about is really also an investment in our communities. Our environment and our habitats and all these natural resources that we share are interconnected. Anywhere that people feel passionate about improving and conserving the environment, I strongly encourage and I think it's um, good to pursue if that makes sense, because anyone doing a little bit is helping everybody overall. Humans have a terrible record on climate change, but this passion for wildlife is one area that demonstrates the good human intervention can do for the environment. We're going to go on a few field trips this episode to visit people who protect threatened whales. But first, let's go birdwatching at the beach. This is Higher Ground from WSHU Public Radio. I'm J.D. Allen. Our bags are packed with support from. My name is Charles Lane. I'm a reporter here at WSHU. Last summer, I started looking into the closing of a rundown motel in the Hamptons on Long Island. And the deeper I dug, the more disturbing it became. What I found was a secret campaign to rid the Hamptons of the places where Latino immigrants lived. This campaign stretched from a small civic group through Southampton town government and all the way to the White House. The story is called Every Town, and you can listen by searching your podcast app for Every Town, or you can click the link in the show notes to this podcast. Long Island is home to lots of different shorebirds that make their nests literally on the beach. So the more sea level rise, the more habitat they lose. Sound familiar? Those are the calls of the common tern, one of the shorebirds monitored in the town of Hempstead. We've been here before when we toured the bay houses back at the start of our journey together. Lido Beach is said to be one of the most productive sites for coastal birds on the island. American oyster catcher, least tern, common tern, and the smallest of them all, piping plover, spend their summers here. You can see them hanging out in the grassy dunes just behind the public beach. One of the great things about this site here is that the town is really involved in managing it. So they have a lot of staff out here doing their shorebird monitoring. They have a lot of staff reminding people to stay off the dunes. That's Shelby Casas from the Theodore Roosevelt Sanctuary and Audubon Center. She works with Samantha Dietz. And we see dozens of other bird fans like us walking around the beach with cameras and notebooks. To see these birds, they're amazing. They're, they're really cool to see in person. 
Uh, but we're really following these birds through their whole time here um, while they're in Long Island. Some birds are easier to spot than others. We step off the boardwalk and immediately see two American oyster catchers. Long, vibrant orange beaks with yellow eyes make them pretty recognizable. And following close behind them, they're fluffy gray chicks returning from a trip to the water. And yeah, it is seriously cute. The parents walked the chicks down to the rack line, which the rack line is basically where all the algae and kind of dead stuff washes up on the shore, and that's a really good feeding resource for a lot of shorebirds. Um, there's a lot of invertebrates in there, a lot of little bugs and stuff. Samantha, the field tech, is keeping a close eye on the bird activity here. A very close eye. She's got this awesome telescope that gives her a great view of the birds, but from a safe distance. They don't like to be disturbed. The binoculars are just not quite strong enough to see those tiny birds. And Shelby says keeping disturbances out requires some extra help. One of the main things is our symbolic fencing. We do set up areas where we're like, these are places where historically birds will nest, and thus we want to block them off early. Symbolic fencing. If you've ever been to a public beach, you've probably seen it. Metal posts with thin string and bright flags, it acts as a barrier between the nesting birds and sunbathers. Without it, you'd really have to watch your step. Shorebirds like this oyster catcher family lay their eggs in small depressions in the sand. Combine that with regular beach traffic, predators, and the looming threat of sea level rise, that's a lot for these birds to deal with. And yet, for the most part, they're doing okay. Populations have fluctuated over time, and today they're pretty stable. But continuing to study the more successful species could reveal better ways to protect the ones that are falling behind. One of the reasons we do monitor these species, even though they're maybe not endangered or threatened, is because often they serve as kind of indicators of the quality of habitat. Um, and so even though the American oyster catcher, for example, on this beach is not endangered like the piping clover, understanding how productive and successful the oyster catchers are being can also help us understand more about the piping plover and protect that species better. Those tiny piping plovers are of great concern. A baby plover, well, imagine a cotton ball on toothpicks. So they're tough to spot with the naked eye. Even with Samantha's telescope, we had some trouble. But we could hear their little peeps in the distance. The adult plovers are round and stocky with a short beak and stick-like orange legs. The federal government has classified them as a threatened species. And in New York, they're considered endangered. It's sea level rise on one side, coastal development on the other side, and then a variety of things that are related to human activity on the beach in the middle. And that's the gauntlet that they run every day of their life. But Bob DeLucas says what we're doing is helping, and it can help even more if we spread the word. What's been proven true is that the number of birds today um, is more than double what it was in the early 90s before we started putting up this fencing. So that's telling us that even with the stressors that are out there, uh, colonial waterbirds can do better if you just aware and read the sign. And if it says don't go in there, please don't go in there. Walk around. Bob's been monitoring coastal waterbirds like the ones we saw at Lido for decades. He now heads advocacy at Group for the East End. When we consider how we might tackle climate change, there's some comfort that we've been successful in taking action to help bird populations. We see comebacks are possible. I mean, just look at the osprey. 
Over 40 years ago, the bird was practically non-existent on Long Island. Today, it's hard to be hanging out at the water and not see one. And that bird I often use, and others do as well, as an example of where people got involved in something and the outcome was positive. So, you know, we do hear a lot about the mess that we make on a regular occasion, and that's quite true. But there are those great examples. The osprey is the ultimate shoreline predator, with a wingspan of up to six feet, big golden eyes, and sharp talons. The pesticide DDT and their food supply made their eggshells too thin for chicks to survive. The ban on DDT in the 70s, along with a strong community effort towards habitat restoration, allowed their numbers to skyrocket. The osprey is an example of one species, and there have been many, um, that essentially was poisoned over, slowly poisoned over time by things that we didn't think about were connected. You realize the connection, then you have to get about figuring out what the bird needs to survive. And in the case of the osprey, um, the placement of nesting structures, the ability to create better places for the bird and more safe places for the bird to nest was a big part of its comeback. The tall platforms are usually built in shallow water out of the way of trees and other structures for a 360 degree view of the area, perfect for catching fish. You could say the osprey has become somewhat of a celebrity to bird nerds like the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, which recorded some of the bird calls for this episode. But we can't forget about the birds that nest a little further away from the spotlight in Long Island's tidal marshes. Like the salt marsh sparrow, not exactly a sexy bird, says Jillian Liner, but this tiny brown sparrow has a lot of spunk. She says it's a great example of how sea level rise is forcing wildlife to adapt. And they've timed their nesting cycle so that they're able to come up, nest, hatch their young, fledge their young um, within the tide cycles. And with sea level rise, it's experiencing more frequent flooding of its nest. The eggs and chicks are actually pretty resilient, but if conditions are too severe, they could drown. Jillian directs conservation at Audubon, New York. The group helps the salt marsh sparrow by building small nesting platforms for them. They're on stilts, much like Hempstead's bay houses. She says while these birds are finding ways to make it work, between climate change and human encroachment, they can't hold on forever. Marshes of areas like Long Island that are really heavily populated are squeezed. They have, they generally abut development or roads um, and homes. And as the sea level is rising, it's squeezing those habitats um, and they're disappearing. And boy, is Long Island's coast heavily populated. So birds have a different relationship with humans now. And for some, that relationship has become a little too friendly. I bet you can guess which birds I'm referring to. Yep, seagulls. Sharing science matters more now than ever. The Alda Center for Communicating Science helps scientists and researchers share their work and its significance in powerful and engaging ways. In this way, we can all explore the wonders and joys of science together. Explore our professional development workshops and graduate programs to discover new ways to build trust and engagement in science. Learn more at aldacenter.org. 
It's 5 a.m. Kimberly Lotto is getting the kayaks ready at Stony Brook Harbor. It's early in the morning for us, but these birds are wide awake. First things first, that name that we use all the time, seagull? Actually isn't a, a, a bird. <laughs> it's just gull um, is the proper term for it. These are herring gulls and blackback gulls. We're paddling over to a small island where they like to hang out. Kim studies seabird ecology. She's hoping to learn more about the gulls' migratory and breeding patterns, specifically in relation to their diet. Some are natural foragers, they go for fish, clams, and crabs, but for others back on land, it's less effort to just eat fast food. The other day, though, we had a herring gull regurgitate pizza, <laughs> which is funny, so we've had, uh, yeah, anthropogenic food, like, pizza and pasta and uh, chicken finger, stuff like that. So in the short term, stealing french fries or a bag of chips from a sunbather is easy pickings. But in the long term, that kind of diet could be disastrous for me, just as it's also bad for them. A lot of the eggs that the blackbacks laid had sort of hairline cracks in them or um, imperfections that I hadn't noticed before. Um, so there's been a lot of sort of dead fetuses in the eggs and um, eggs that never grow into a fetus. Fast food might make them sluggish and not be able to do what they need to survive. The plan today is to tag gulls with GPS on their tails and mark their heads with a sharpie, believe it or not. Now all we have to do is catch them. Get ready for a rodeo. Kim and the team set traps in seagull nests. Imagine a bear trap, but without sharp teeth. A gull will land on one and snap. We got him with a net. But these gulls have gotten smart, and at this point they've realized what seeing people on the island usually means. So the traps have to be discreetly placed. So when we deploy in a bird because we want to sort of minimize the time that they're trapped in the trap because it stresses them out, we run to the bird. <laughs> so you're going to see us running. After all the traps are laid out, it's a lot of watching and waiting. I have a feeling, so noose carpet bird's also sitting. He might flush and get caught when I go for bonnet, so keep an eye I on I can him. do noose carpet bird if you go to bonnet. Yeah. If that happens. And then I'll meet you at bonnet bird. Until we catch one. Three, two, one. Caught him. I'm doing these types of now. Actually, we caught two. One in the trap and one in the snare. All right, two for one. We bolt down the beach to avoid stressing the gulls out too much. Hey, buddy. It's okay. They put towels over their heads to help calm them down. Uh, what I will do is take blood. So today, taking blood is a priority for us. Um, so that's the first thing I'm going to do. And then we'll do some morphometric measurements, so um, that's taking things like tarsus length, Coleman length, min and max bill, max head length, and then um, we take the mass, and then we let them go. We take the blood back to a laboratory at Stony Brook University. 
Leslie Thorne is a marine ecologist and Kim's boss. A lot of gulls are taking advantage of these human habitats, but I don't think we thoroughly understand the implications of that in terms of their health. Just like humans, birds make the decision whether it's worth it to stop for fast food or spend time preparing a meal. The issue of particularly sea level rise is a really difficult one for shorebirds. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, many species will be able to simply move their, their breeding um, sites as, um, as environments change and as sea levels rise. Uh, in, in some parts, that problem is, is much more difficult. Humans and birds have just about the same options when you think about it. Have a bigger dune to bolster the beach to prevent flooding our homes, or we might need to make some kind of community retreat. You know, no two species are going to respond exactly the same. And that just doesn't apply to birds. Leslie is also studying different kinds of whales. Humpbacks are the most common here. These guys are huge. Adults can be around 50 feet long, and they can be spotted off Long Island's South Shore pretty much all year round if you're lucky. She says in some ways, human interaction has been less lucky for whales. We're seeing that juvenile whales are um, showing very different habitat use from the, the older adults. So juveniles feeding um, in inshore waters and, and using foraging behaviors that we think um, probably put them at risk of um, interactions with humans, so things like vessel strikes. Um, but actually what we're doing right now, what my, my lab is doing, is looking at um, strandings throughout um, the northeast coast over the past um, 25 years and looking at patterns of vessel traffic to see if we can see any broad-scale changes there. So we see a lot of smaller vessels um, going really, really fast, which um, is a, an important contributor to vessel strikes, so more likely to have um, fatal vessel strikes and also for, for vessel strikes to occur in, in the first time when you're coming up on a whale really quickly. These boats, they're relatively close to shore. You know, they're not going out as far, which means that these whales are pretty close to shore relatively, and they're being struck by these fast-moving boats. They are feeding in New York on these surface aggregations of, of menhaden. Menhaden, also known as bunkerfish, travel together in massive schools. Baby humpbacks can swallow hundreds at a time. There used to be more menhaden in the sea. U.S. fishermen catch about 140,000 metric tons of menhaden a year to use as bait. The record was in 1956 when fishermen caught over 710,000 metric tons. In recent years, warming waters have allowed the spread of a bacteria that has caused massive die-offs. All this means whales have to work harder for a meal. And the fact that they're, they're feeding at the surface, lunge feeding right at the surface of the water, as opposed to um, the behavior that we're seeing offshore, you can see how that surface feeding behavior would, would put um, juvenile whales at, at higher, higher risk of being struck by a vessel. Leslie hopes her research can raise awareness to reduce boat collisions with whales and help create better ocean management to allow juveniles time to feed. Federal records show that from 2016 to 2021, more than 150 humpback whales died on beaches and in waters off of the Atlantic coast. The 31 in New York in those five years were the most of any state. Of the dead whales examined, half had evidence of human interaction, such as a boat strike or entanglement in fishing gear. And when an injured whale winds up on the beach, well, 
That's when you call Rob DiGiovanni. We're inside the mobile response unit trailer that we have that can be considered our incident command post. So if we had a critical event and we had a lot of animals coming up in one area, we can have this as a rally point. Rob is chief scientist at the Atlantic Marine Conservation Society. There is some high-tech equipment in here that I cannot recognize. Rob tells me that they have microscopes, a temporary filtration system, and blood testing equipment. A beacon in case there's a dead whale too far offshore that they need to track. But the mobile response unit is also a tool to make their work and the whales more visible to beachgoers. 30 years ago, we were not talking about whales and seals and, and sea turtles as much as we are today. People are talking about what's in, in our environment. Long Island has a rich history with whales, actually in hunting them. The commercial whaling fishery in the United States is thought to have begun in the 1650s between white settlers in Southampton, Long Island, and the Shinnecock tribe. When you think about us standing out on the beach way back then, and you decide that you're seeing enough whales that you can get into a dugout canoe and go and hunt them, the number of whales you used to see here must have been amazing. The settlers expanded the operations so much so through New England that whale populations were almost wiped out. The industry peaked around the Civil War and the practice was finally federally banned in the 1970s. In the decades since the ban, certain whale populations have made a decent comeback. And now whale watching excursions out of Montauk near the lighthouse we visited have even become popular with tourists. But more frequent whale sightings doesn't always signify a positive change. You have a lot of animals that are here. You have a lot of animals that are washing up. Uh, how does that relate to the healthy or wild population? And so now we're starting to see this resurgence of some of these animals, maybe due to food. But then we're also going to have the threats that we have, whether they just get sick or they get entangled or hit by vessels or ingest debris. All of those factors needs to be examined. Having these conversations about human intervention and climate change is a move in the right direction, says climatologist Leslie Andupini Giroux. Science communication has to be a conversation. It has to be a two-way conversation where it's like sitting down with somebody and having a cup of tea or coffee. Leslie Ann is the president of the American Association of State Climatologists. Her home state is Vermont, and her group looks at ways to explain to residents climate changes happening in their backyards. Conditions are changing faster off the coast of the Northeast than they are for the rest of the contiguous U.S. One of the things that you see about the Northeast is, is the ripple effect that a lot of these changes produce. Leslie Ann hopes these ripple effects can motivate people to address climate change in their own lives. When we think about changes in the ocean as, as an impact of, of climate change, it has these ripple down effects to, to your grocery store, to your pocketbook, right? And so that's part of the reason why it's, it's particularly important to look at how all of the ways in which climate change manifests itself so that we can get a full appreciation of um, why, is, why does it matter to, to really pay attention? And if we're going to have this conversation on Long Island, as well as elsewhere around the country, we need to recognize that not every community can address climate change and rising sea level the same way. We've already seen some differences and inequalities in how preparation and adaptation are approached here. Next episode, we visit communities that need to be better heard. <laughs> Do I?
who you be, what you need, why you talking to me? Don't be caught, I'm a needle to the weave. Better talk or you'll fall through the seams. Spit it out, what's your play? Think you're slick with your bag or what it tricks? I'm not fooled by the shape of your lips, just a suit in the shape of a tick. Higher Ground is produced and mixed by Sabrina Garone and me, J.D. Allen, with editing from Harriet Jones. Kelly Hills Mucky and Sarah Ruberg did fact-checking and research. Music is composed by Samuel Davies and Eric Harper. Graphic art by Joshua Joseph. This podcast was made possible by the Allen Alda Center for Communicating Science. Higher Ground is a production of WSHU Public Radio. For more, go to WSHU.org. The next episode is available wherever you get your podcasts. Sew it up, close a rip, put a nice little plaque on the slip. I can sew like a Vincent Van Gogh. No one needs ever know to start the show. Have you found what you lost? Have you lost what you found? Do you really understand how you sift for a love in the sand? Like a leaf inside the wind. And you go where it tells you to go. But you never wonder why. There isn't nothing here at all. Sew it up, close a rip, put a nice little plaque on the slip. I can sew like a Vincent Van Gogh. No one needs ever know to start the show. Have you found what you lost? Have you lost what you found? Do you really understand how you sift for a love in the sand? Like a leaf inside the wind. And you go where it tells you to go. But you never wonder why There isn't nothing here at all